Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the new health secretary has given his first statement on COVID, saying that England's restrictions won't be easing any earlier than planned. At the same time, uh, he's also uh, talking about being confident that the curbs could be lifted within three weeks. It's a notable shift in tone then from the government as Javid appeared to play down the risks from the virus, but he did duck questions over whether restrictions may need to be brought back in the autumn and winter if infections rise again. Well, joining us now is Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East and Chair of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, thanks for being with us today. Um, first of all, I suppose a question in a lot of people's minds, will Sajid Javid be a better health secretary than Matt Hancock? Uh, well, if, if you don't mind, I'm not going to wander down that particular road. What we saw from Sajid Javid, I think you've illustrated that, is the clarity of communication. You know, people are so weary about what's happened, concerned that we need to move through this safely, but eager to get back to some form of normality. So clarity on the, the July the 19th date, I think, was very, very important uh, indeed to say, yes, this is the date. I'm unlikely to change beforehand. But obviously be wary of where things go into the future. There's still so much we're learning about this pandemic. And uh, the vaccinations is doing its job. Uh, So let's move tentatively, but move forward uh, at the end of July. Okay, so that's what you would like to see in terms of the reopening. Um, Did Johnson um, handle this affair well? Would he actually have looked a bit stronger if he had sacked Hancock? Seemed to some that he almost claimed on Monday that he had sacked him. Yeah, I saw different reports on this. I think it became clear that Matt Hancock had to uh, resign. And I'm actually pleased that Santa Javid has been brought back in. He's a very, very competent uh, minister. It was a loss when he departed and uh, curious circumstances to do with Dominic Cummings. Uh, He's absolutely one of the grown-ups in the room and it's a massive portfolio. Let's not get away from this. I've been on your programme in the past saying that we should have separated perhaps the challenge of this enduring emergency from the day-to-day operations of government. We, government chose not to do that, not to have any a separated task force, if you like, uh, but to combine the day jobs of running massive departments, whether it be health, uh, education or environment and so forth, and tackle the pandemic at the same time. Nevertheless, Sajid Javid is, is a very competent minister. I'm pleased to see him in that role. He gave his first statement yesterday, making it very, very clear the direction of terrible that he wants to take things. 
uh, Tobias, forgive me, I, I understand why you're, why you're moving, if you like, all towards the way of managing this or the way uh, that the health department needs to be managed. But there are questions that still need to be asked about what happened during the pandemic and particularly what happened with Matt Hancock and what was revealed by this. I mean, there is a, a whiff of sleaze hanging around the, the contracts that were handed out, who they were handed out to, the appointment of an advisor in what seems an unorthodox way. I mean, these are issues that have to be addressed. I, I don't doubt that at all. You're absolutely right. We need to, to learn from this. One of the things that we espouse is the fact that Britain is a very transparent and open uh, government, and uh, we are held to account. One of my jobs as a chair of the Defence Select Committee is to scrutinise the work of government. Prime Minister has agreed to a full review, and I don't believe any stone will be left unturned, whether it's the PPV contracts or indeed who was hired and who was not. I'm not in the position to judge any of that. I'm not close to it at all. Uh, but I'm focusing now, as I think everybody is, on the next few critical months as we transition from the COVID situation to a new normal. Britain is a test case. The whole of the world is looking at us to see whether we can um, sever the link between the number of cases rising five-month high today and the number of hospitalisations and deaths. Deaths do remain low. It's going to be incredibly difficult to avoid reopening um, completely, lifting all the restrictions on the 19th of July, even if the numbers actually go against us. It could very well be that that's a judgment that's made. I think they will look at the data at the time. But you're absolutely right. Those three critical data parameters, number of cases leading to number of hospitalizations, leading to the number of deaths. Can you break the links between those because of vaccinations and because perhaps you can have some form of restrictions still in place or indeed guidance? You know, Do we still have to continue to wear masks in certain environments on the tube and places like that? These are questions that I think will be you know, challenging Sajid Javid. Uh, I hope at least we'll, the, absolutely the majority of restrictions will be left and we can get back to some form of normality. But isn't the problem that there are people on on your own benches, in the back benches, uh, Andrew Bridgen, for example, is one who's very, very keen to open up under any circumstances, almost whatever. There's a big push from a number of Tories to do this. And that maybe will outweigh perhaps the caution that needs to be there. Yeah, I mean, some, one thing that's so important here is the consent of the nation. Are people willing to continue after, you know, months, years of, of uh, living under restrictions to abide by government guidelines? And, of course, you've got the economy, which has been so hit uh, by the pandemic, not the academia as well. So can we make sure that we take the, the right steps that keeps everybody together uh, does the best for our economy, allows businesses to get back uh, to where they were before. Hospitality in particular, Bournemouth that I represent, calling out for these restrictions uh, to be lifted so they can get back to some form of normality. Pubs in particular, you know, want to be able to, be able to open up as the way they did before. Mm. Um, did your constituents complain, write, ring about Matt Hancock not obeying the rules? It was a very emotional weekend for many people who saw that, particularly bereaved families. Yeah, you can understand uh, the anger, as you saw when Dominic Cummings did his journey up north to, you know, to, to the castle as well. There is you know, a standard which the government needs to uh, adhere. And when you fall short of that, then you have to answer questions or indeed, you know, do the right thing uh, and, and indeed uh, and indeed resign. And that's the system that we have in the UK and quite right it is too.
Yeah, but the point, I suppose, in this, Tobias, is that people having seen that the man who invented the rules, or, or certainly seemed to be uh, the man who was breaking them, that is a very fundamental breach of trust. Uh, and there will be people out there saying, well, why on earth should I do anything about these now? And you can't blame them, can you? No, you can't. I, I simply focus on the, the challenge that is COVID that remains, uh, the fact that we do need to get out of this uh, pandemic if we aren't able, going back to you know, the real criteria, cases, hospitalizations, deaths, if we're not able to break the connections between those, then I'm afraid you know, life will get tougher. And much as it is, you, know, you can make judgments on the government itself, uh, it's individuals that will be affected. You know, it'll be loved ones that uh, will, you know, will be hurt by this. What mm. I want to do now do is, is look forward to say over the horizon, you know, it's interesting you say that the world is looking at Britain. If we vaccinated so well, what are the next steps? Let's horizon plan and say, if we've got people double vaccinated, let's make sure that we have easier conditions for us to travel. I'm still waiting for some form of, of uh, a collaboration with our European partners, the United States and so on, to say, if you've been double vaccinated, you can indeed travel and you're not subject to the level of quarantines that we've seen to date. That, I think, I think will be in everybody's interest. And I hope the government is contemplating this. Yeah, OK. Although a lot of countries are adding restrictions to travellers from the UK because infection rates, the Delta variant, are so high here. But, but that's, if I may in, yeah. in, interject, that's exactly the wrong thing. To, we need to be making the case to say there could be cases that are here. And clearly, you're not allowed to travel, should not be travelling if you've got COVID. But mm. if you received both vaccines, why not start that liberation process? have this, you know, dual agreement. Ultimately, you know, Portugal, Spain and places, France and so on, that, their tourism would benefit by, you know, receiving the, you know, British uh, visitors. And no doubt families will also benefit from the UK because, of course, you know, nothing will be more uh, pleasurable than finally to be able to go, uh, you know, on that holiday. Yeah. Tobias, may I finally draw you to a different area uh, than, than all this, and one that, that you obviously have a great interest in. You know about what happened with the MOD documents being found behind a bus shelter in Kent. <coughs> hugely embarrassing, hugely difficult. What do you know about what happened? Because so far, there seems to be perilously little action by the MOD on this. No, and it's important. Thank you for raising this. It's so important that security breaches like this uh, are registered and uh, acknowledged and then investigated now, the Secretary of State for Defence, his former job was security minister. He was there for a number of years. He's actually put in processes in place to make sure uh, that there are proper investigations. But we will be speaking with him to say what's happening here. Fortunately, uh, if, if, well, I say fortunately, but an individual did step forward to say, I did lose them, which otherwise it would have left questions open as to whether this had been done deliberately and so forth. But why did human error creep in this? How will it look to our allies, particularly the Five Eyes community, where we mm. have this sharing of intelligence uh, between us? We yeah. must make sure that uh, circumstances are never allowed to carry yeah. UK, you know, d- d- uh, secret uh, UK eyes only documents on a London bus. I mean, it does seem almost too, too coincidental that it was about the documents. Uh, Tobias reflected, for example, the the, the Black Sea uh, voyage of the, of the boat. I mean, it seems almost too much of a coincidence to be a mistake, doesn't it? It wasn't just that. I mean, the scale of this information, 50 pages of it, it was also to the US-UK dialogue. It was to do with our you know, uh, involvement or withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the Black Sea. Now, the BBC did show some responsibility in not putting up other documents. They clearly wanted to show what was there. But we don't know whether there was 
you know, future cons- uh, aspects in there to do with, let's say, China and where the Queen Elizabeth goes next. So absolutely, this is very, very serious uh, indeed. There was an urgent question placed yesterday to yeah. uh, you know, raise attention to this, and I certainly will be speaking with the Secretary of State. We need to make sure that no such documents such as this leave the building this manner again. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Uh, Bubble arrangements and self-isolation for school children should end as soon as possible. That's according to the new Children's Commissioner for England. Rachel D'Souza says there's an urgent need to get back to normal as lockdown restrictions have been a real trauma for many young people. The schools minister, Nick Gibb, confirmed the government is conducting a review into using testing to end self-isolation for pupils in bubbles. He was saying that earlier today. Meanwhile, the Metropolitan Police are investigating video footage of England's chief medical officer being grabbed and shoved by two men in St James's Park in London. The Prime Minister has said he was shocked at the despicable harassment, calling the men involved thugs. The Health Secretary also dubbed it appalling and totally unacceptable. Others have called for protection for Chris Whitty, who has actually faced public harassment before during the pandemic. And remote work may shift 835,000 jobs out of London due to COVID and flexible working. That's according to research by the consulting firm Advanced Workplace Associates. The firm looked at 13 London boroughs plus the City of London, finding many workers in the services sector are likely to be able to do their jobs outside the office. And finally, second-generation ethnic minorities in the UK have fared much better than their white counterparts when it comes to education, but they are less likely to be employed. That's according to research by the Institute for Fiscal Studies. The IFS said that neither the backgrounds of individuals nor discrimination fully explained the job market inequalities. The report was published days after the Confederation of British Industry signed a letter to Boris Johnson calling for mandatory reporting on ethnic pay gaps. Now, the Batley and Spen by-election on Thursday is going to be very closely watched right across the political spectrum. It's a Labour seat, famously the one held by Jo Cox when she was murdered in 2016 during the Brexit referendum campaign. Her sister is standing as the Labour candidate this time, following the departure of Tracy Brabin to become Mayor of West Yorkshire. 
It's also a key red wall target for the Conservatives, and the results will be seen as evidence of any effect of the Matt Hancock affair on Tory support. At the same time, if Labour lose badly, the knives could be out for Keir Starmer. Well, joining us now is Dr Victoria Honeyman, who's Associate Professor of British Politics at Leeds University, which is, of course, just up the road from Batley and Spen. And they've been looking at the issues and local feelings in Batley and Spen, and she joins us now. Dr Honeyman, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, what do you think are the main issues in people's minds there in Batley and Spen at the moment? I think that the, the issues need to be separated out into what would be described as local issues and more national issues and perhaps even international issues. So in Batley and Spen itself, you have a whole variety of issues that could be described as local issues, um, but obviously have national elements to them, issues regarding investment or a lack of investment in the local area, um, issues of policing, criminality, job opportunities, schooling, etc., etc. The kind of meat and veg issues that you see in many, you know, many local constituencies. Because this isn't taking part, place during an election, like a general election, you've also got a, a more national and international element to it. So we've had plenty of visits from Boris Johnson. We've had very high-profile visits um, from leading uh, Labour MPs, including Keir Starmer. Because this is taking on another dimension, so some of those bigger issues, such as, trustworthiness of the government, issues relating to Matt Hancock, those bigger issues are beginning to, to feature in this election. There's also mm. a question mark over more international issues. So estimates put the, um, the, um, the population of Batley at about 25% of those who have their family origins overseas. Um, and most of those people will have family origins in, in Pakistan or India, for example. And therefore, there seems to be some kind of issue relating to um, both Palestine and Kashmir. But that being said, just because your family originates from another part of the world doesn't necessarily mean that that is high on your voter list. And we've got to be careful indicating that somebody's background, somebody's um, cultural position, or for the point of fact, someone's religion determines how they vote. It doesn't. Mm. Lots of things determine how people vote. So there's a lot going on here. OK, so how do you factor in um, uh, I mean, what you've mentioned, the issues around Israel and Palestine? Because it has been suggested that Labour are suffering because of their stance on the Middle East, because in, within the constituency there is a large Muslim population. How true might that be? It's very difficult to know. As I say, just because somebody happens to be Islamic just because someone follows a specific religion doesn't automatically guarantee their vote one way or the other. And it's something that has been discussed within the constituency about how much the Labour Party uh, locally and nationally have expected votes from particular sectors of society. Here we have a problem where it is difficult to know how those issues are going to factor into people's thinking. You certainly know that there's been a lot of noise about it. So other candidates, George Galloway perhaps most famously, have been talking about these issues. There's been Labour campaign material that appears to have gone out um, with pictures of Boris Johnson um, meeting uh, uh, the, the leader of, of India, Modi. It does seem to be playing to some, but it's very difficult to separate the substance from the noise you know, we don't really know how much of that is going to impact on the vote. But everything that we know is telling us that that vote across the, the two main parties is going to be very, very close. 
it could well be that grabbing or trying to grab certain votes over big issues like Palestine and, and Israel might be a, a vote winner, but it's dangerous territory for a local um, MP or a local prospective MP to try and take on. How much does their voice really count in, in these big debates? And Victoria, what about the, the other issue, I suppose, that's been grabbing the headlines this week, which is, of course, what happened with Matt Hancock. Some people saying that people who might have been voting Tory might think, well, uh, there's a whiff of sleaze about this. They're making the rules. They're not obeying the rules. Is that kind of stuff likely to, to cut into the Tory vote, do you think? It might do. Um, I think that this is not necessarily such a new issue. Um, there have been accusations levelled at the Conservative Party for several months regarding cronyism, issues about PPE contracts and a whole variety of, of other things that many listeners will be very aware of. So I'm not necessarily sure that the Matt Hancock issue is, is breaking new ground. If anything, it's just adding more fuel to that fire. So I'm not necessarily sure that there will be people who were going to vote Conservative who now won't. But if you have someone who was on the fence about it, this might be the factor that that push them over. It certainly isn't a positive position for the Conservative candidate to have to field questions about hypocrisy. That's not what you want the week before you go to the election. No. How much does local loyalty factor in then to Labour because of the connection to Joe Cox? I think that there's a few issues relating to Kim Ledbetter, who, as you rightly said, is, is Joe Cox's sister. Um, the first thing is that, that Kim is local to the constituency, so she actually comes from the Batley and Spen area, and she's worked within the community. I think that these are both factors that will probably play very well for her. And incidentally, they were factors that were more questioned in Hartlepool, for example, where Labour lost their were concerns about how local the candidate actually is. The Conservative candidate is also relatively local. He is the local councillor for another part of Leeds, but he isn't parachuted in in that regard. I think that the Joe Cox issue is, is much trickier and much more sensitive. I, 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 from everything that I've read about Kim Ledbetter, she would be unhappy if she thought that people were voting for her as a sympathy uh, vote. She wants to stand on who she is and the things that she believes in. But inevitably, because of the background of the seat, she is Joe Cox's sister, and that is a fact that she cannot run away with. It's a tragic fact that, that she would wish not to be true. But as I say, I don't think that she's particularly playing upon that. It is a, a personal tragedy, and it's awful. But I, I haven't seen anything that suggests that she's either playing on it or that the other candidates are making you know, hay out of that because it's so tragic. Now, Victoria, something we almost haven't really mentioned yet in all this is, of course, the, the overarching issue of the pandemic, the, the vaccine rollout, all these kind of things. Is that something where people talk about, well, the vaccine rollout in the end will be the saviour of the Tories, a lot of people have said, because people think that has been the best thing to come out of the last 18 months. Is that affecting the vote? Potentially. The Conservatives certainly seem to, to be suggesting so. So if you, if you watched not just the news or the, the politics programmes over the weekend, but for, for many weeks, if not months, you will, you will very often see that the vaccine programme is referred to again and again and again. If you watch Prime Minister's question time, you will see it as being the answer to lots of questions. When probing questions are put forward about how the government is acting, the vaccine programme is rolled out as a, as a measure of success because it has been so successful and has worked so well. There is some data that is beginning to show that that vaccine bounce is beginning to wear off. Um, it hasn't worn off yet, but it is beginning to wane. People are beginning to want to know the answers to the questions rather than just be reminded of a vaccine programme, which has worked very effectively, but isn't the answer to all questions. And I think for individuals who are concerned about 
where we go from here, both economically and socially, it may well be a factor in their voting. But you've got to remember mm. this is a local election. You are electing one MP. You aren't picking the government. And therefore, there is a limited amount that you can actually do in terms of your vote if you're in Batley and Sven to affect these big national issues. You can try and send a message, yeah. but that's really all you can do. Well, but Batley and Spen is in the public eye, isn't it? Um, I mean, what do people around you, what do people in the area make then of being, um, you know, at at the front of this, uh, just very briefly? I think that local constituencies, when they get this kind of opportunity to be in the national spotlight, they want to try and and get what they can out of it because they're never really going to be in this position again. So they're looking to see what kind of promises they can get out of the candidate and potentially out of government before they put their cross in the box because they know that the attention will move off again once this is all over and they want something concrete to hang their hat on. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.